I gotta say, this week's episode of Hodinkee Radio is a big one for me. Our guest is Mr. Alton Brown, a man who's tough to define in a word or two. He's a TV food personality, best known for his show Good Eats and Iron Chef America, but he's also a chef, a pilot, an actor, a musician, and of course, a watch collector and a Talking Watches alum. I'll try not to fanboy out too much, but I basically learned to cook by watching late-night Food Network marathons of Good Eats in the days way before Netflix binge-watching. Alton's the kind of guy who believes that it's ultimately the emotional value of something that makes it special, whether that's food, watches, or, well, anything else really. But he's also a big nerd at heart, and he wants to understand how and why things work the way they do. We ended up talking about everything from a shared love of vintage tool watches to a very unconventional way to cook a spatchcocked game hen to a super funky 1970s Patek Philippe that he's totally obsessed with right now. This is one of the most straight-up fun episodes of Hodinkee Radio yet, and the fact that we recorded this in front of a live audience at the Hodinkee 10th anniversary weekend in New York only makes it all the more special. Get yourself a cup of coffee or a glass of Japanese whiskey, settle in, and buckle up. I'm your host, Stephen Pulverant, and this is Hodinkee Radio Live. This week's episode is brought to you by Tag Hoyer. Stay tuned later in the episode to learn more about a new Hoyer Octavia. You can also visit taghoyer.com to learn more. Here we go. Here we go. Live, so don't mess this up. Yeah, please. Don't be nervous. Don't <laughs> say anything. Come on, be natural. I'll be good. Um, Try to be natural. Look at all the phones. Yeah, wow. <laughs> You guys want Hi, some pictures? First off, I just want to thank everybody for coming out. I have to say, I've been involved with Hodinkee for, I guess, about six and a half years now. And to see everybody out here showing their support, we've got people I've known the entire six and a half years I've, I've been involved, and some people I just met last night, some people I met earlier today. Uh, it's really incredible. And I can tell you, really, from the, the bottom of all of our hearts at Hodinkee, this is, this is incredible. This is amazing. There are no other words for it. I think uh, Stephen nailed it. Yeah, this yeah. is fantastic. So happy to be here. So. I think, uh, I think we've got a pretty good show for you today. We've got uh, Hodinkee senior editor, John Buse. Very happy to be here. We've got, uh, I guess, international man of mystery, Ron. <laughs> yes, uh, for I like that, international man. Yeah. I'm going to put that on my business card. And, and talking watches alum. I am a talking watches alum. Yeah. I had a great time that day. And uh, I'm your host, Stephen Pulverin. And uh, this is Hodinkee Radio Live. Let's do it. So. It's like a really bad, you know, bars where, you know, like in the 70s, you go in a bar and all the guys look at all the girls' butts. But now yeah. we're just guys that are looking at each other's wrists. <laughs> Which is much safer in the Me Too yeah. generation. It's this still, is safe. This and is all okay. the stuff we're looking at is from the 70s. So Most of it. Yeah. A lot of except it. Except some of us kind of prefer the stuff from the 50s, which isn't creepy. It's not creepy, <laughs> okay. but it's okay. not. So, yeah. Well, I should go, shouldn't I? Uh, <laughs> So people here might know you from your episode of Talking Watches, but you've actually been a member of the extended Hodinkee family for a lot longer than that. Yeah. Uh, I, first, I became a fan when you guys first started selling really awesome suede distressed watch bands. Which is how I knew that you were a part of the family. So in the old days, if you bought a Hodinkee strap or one of our Drake's neckties or anything like that in the early days, uh, ben or myself put it in a USPS envelope and printed out a PayPal label on the WeWork printer and prayed that we had enough packing tape and packed it up and sent it your way. And one day I had a stack of labels and I saw one that said 
Alton Brown. Do you remember what year it was? Because I was talking to my wife, and I was trying to remember when that was. 2012, late 2012. That I long? Guess. I thought it was uh, maybe even 2013. <laughs> but I remember the, the the watch that I was buying for was yeah. a uh, Tudor Snowflake. Okay, cool. And I bought uh, a brown uh, uh, distressed suede band, and it was so boss. It was like yes. <laughs> You guys really kind of started that revolution of saying, look, we're going to buy vintage watches. We need awesome straps to put on them. Yeah. And we need to change those straps out on a regular basis. Yeah. You know, we need 12 NATO straps and 15 suede straps. And you guys started that. And, and the quality was fantastic. I mean, it really started organically. It was like, you know, Ben wanted straps. And it turned out other people wanted straps too. And now we've got a whole amazing team over there in the Hodinkee shop uh, with more options than you could possibly know what to do with. I know, I'm going to shoplift three before I leave today. I love to hear that. <laughs> um, for you, you're allowed. Um, don't tell them. No, I'm not. I'm know, not make not. sure they don't know. But uh, I remember them maybe six months later sitting on my couch. I was living in Brooklyn at the time. And seeing on an episode of Iron Chef America, you stepped out at the beginning and you were wearing our Drake's tie. Yeah. And I remember completely losing my mind. I mean, I'm, I'm, <laughs> to, to fanboy out for a second, I learned to cook from watching Good Eats. Huge Iron Chef fan. Really, like, genuinely just a big super fan. And I remember seeing it and immediately, like, pausing the DVR. So you recognized it right away? Yeah, immediately. Uh, and I think I probably called my mom first. <laughs> it's a little embarrassing, but uh, I probably... She's like Alton who? Yeah. yeah. Um, Definitely no, she's also watching today. My family is more excited to be watching you than to be watching me on the live stream, but that's okay. Um, but yeah, so you've been, you've been a member of the family for, I've been a fan for, a long for time. quite a while. You know, I think that it's because um, watch collecting used to be this really lonely thing, um, and, and there wasn't really, uh, there hasn't been that, that much community uh, around it. And I think that what you guys did on top of making great products is you also started to kind of create that community. Yeah. Uh, that, that we needed because we're geeks and nerds and nobody likes us by and large. So yeah. um, it, it really, we needed that. Yeah. Thank and you. Absolutely. And uh, so since Talking Watches, you know, what, what has, you, you've been a very busy man since Talking Watches in I guess what, summer 2017? No, gosh, it was uh, 16. 16, yeah. okay. So summer since 16. then, yeah. What's been, what's been going on in the life of Alton Brown? Making, uh, trying to make TV shows. We're actually relaunching the show Good Eats. It's going to start all over again next year with a show called Return of the Eats. That's going to be called Return of the Eats. We were going to call it Son of uh, the Eats, and then I wanted Revenge of the Eats. But then we argued about, well, should be Revenge or Return of the Eats. And so we just decided. The problem is Eats is already plural, so you can't just make it Eats. Yeah, but no, you can't. We could, but it's too minimal. It's, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's it's, it, it doesn't really work. Just Eats could be a, a lot of things. Um, and then uh, this year, we also uh, relaunched a, a series called Good Eats Reloaded, where I went back. And it's like some of the really, that show was on for, I ran it for 14 solid years without stopping. So I look back at some of the original shows, and I'm like, oh, crap. Uh, the haircuts alone. <laughs> um, yeah, the haircuts, the clothes, uh, but also just a lot has changed in the world of food, and yeah. so I had to go back and fix them. It was like, Food Network was like, we want you to make them again. I'm like, I got to go make some repairs first. So uh, that has been really successful. We're doing a second season of Reloads uh, next year as awesome. well, and I'm doing another live tour show, although this, this one will be for the holidays. You also just released an album of music. Didn't we you? released a CD last year. Yeah. We did, which uh, made uh, the Billboard comedy charts a couple of times, which is no big deal because there's only like three comedy records made last year, so it wasn't a big deal. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then it was a lot of fun. So what's it like to go back to your work that, that a lot of people consider seminal, Painful. really important work? Painful. Yeah? Yeah. It's like, who's the chubby kid with all the hair? Oh, that's me. 
Um, no, it's, it's difficult because I had, I, I don't, I'm about process, so I don't sit around and fawn over the product when it's done. When I'm done making it, once it leaves the edit room, a lot of the shows I never saw again. So now to go back, I'm like, oh, crap. Um, so, so awkward, awkward and, and kind of painful. And so you've got to learn how to, how to actually walk onto a screen with a version of yourself that's 19 or in some cases 20 years younger and make total fun of that asshat because, oh, I'm sorry. You're allowed, allowed to. You're allowed. Um, it's because, all adults here. You know, I was, was a complete dork, you know, yeah. um, and uh, but with a fabulous set of hair at the time. Yeah. Um, but painful and strange, but also exhilarating. And you know, coming full circle on anything when you realize, God, I've been around long enough now for work to be 20 years old. You know, because the the first episodes of Good Eats um, premiered in July of 1999, but we actually shot the pilot episodes. And the only reason I'm not talking to you is my microphone works better on him. <laughs> All right. Um, Sorry, John. We oh, actually shot those shows in the fall of um, 1997. And just to show how old we were, we shot the original pilots on film. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because we didn't, most of us were from commercials and movies and music videos. We didn't know anything. Yeah. Uh, so um, they were really old. Yeah. So kind of facing that was painful, but now I'm kind of like glad I got it over with. Because not many artists get a chance to go back. It's like remastering an album that was okay but could have been a lot better. Yeah. So. And you said the world of foods changed. How, how would you describe what's changed kind of on a large scale in the world of food? You know, I think there are two things that changed um, the world of food. Just No, three. Three things changed uh, food immeasurably just in the time that I've been making food shows, which is, okay, one, the Internet. It's kind of a big thing. Which was a baby when when we started in 97, it was, you know, dial up, you know? It was like, okay, I'm on to Amazon. It's this new bookstore. Anybody remember? When totally. I, I remember those days. Amazon was yeah. just a bookstore. Um, and, and, and so that, uh, certainly Food Network changed kind of a lot. And then Instagram changed a lot because now we don't care how food tastes. We just care how it looks. Right. And people will Instagram food without tasting it, which I don't understand. It's like, it's, it's beautiful, but it tastes like crap. Um, so we've got to work that out. But, but because of those things, because of media, in other words, mm -hmm. everything in food has changed radically. And our relationships with food, what we expect from food. Um, you know, I, I know folks that live here in New York who are like, well, I don't like this risotto because that's clearly Iranian saffron, and the crop this year sucked. Oh, well. But they go home, and it's like, I got to boil an egg? How do I do that? <laughs> so. We, we have this whole generation of people that are very, very um, educated about food and have great uh, experience with food but can't cook. And I think that, that a lot of that is media. Interesting. Do you think the, the sort of most people's relationship to food and kind of experience of food is better today than it was 20, 25 years ago? Or do you think it's, it's worse or just, just different? It's both. Um, and, it's, and it's both for a few reasons. Um, our exposure is clearly so much more than it used to be. Um, things like Amazon have made it possible for us to get great spices very quick. We can get any ingredient. You know, 20 years ago, we couldn't make shows that had fish sauce in them because nobody could get fish sauce. Now people are like, fish sauce? I get that at Dwayne Reed, you know? I, <laughs> so uh, in a lot of ways, it's, it's so much better. We have more exposure to cuisines. We have more exposure to ingredients. The problem, I think, is that our, our relationship is, is not so good as far as sitting down at the table and, and experiencing hospitality mm -hmm. with other people. We're, we're a little shaky on those grounds, I think. And I think some of that comes from media. The fact that, you know, the real miracle of food is being able to sit down at a table with people and have an experience 
with, with those people. And we don't pay that much attention to the people at the table anymore because we're too busy Instagramming, oh my God, look at the Parmesan curls. You know, okay. I, I, I trained under a French chef who was uh, Parisian and you wouldn't have heard of him and it doesn't matter, but uh, one night when I was, I was training under him, when I was just out of culinary school and I'm working the grill station and I'm like freaking out. It's like between Christmas and New Year's and it was a restaurant near a ski resort and so we're being slammed and he like stopped the entire line. Everything stopped. Mm -hmm. Stop everything. Everybody put everything down and he comes up to me and he says, Alton, there's only two kinds of food. There's good food and the bad food. And in 12 hours, they're all sheet. <laughs> and then he started the lineup again, and I'm like, what just happened? But I knew that it was somehow important. And, you know, in the end, the food is all shit in 12 hours. But our experiences with each other as we eat are priceless and memories last forever. So hospitality is the hospitality and civility, which, by the way, we suck at in this country right now. Um, being civil to each other and showing each other real hospitality and also being able to accept hospitality. You know, you, you give me a piece of food, I need to be able to graciously take that food and consume it and be grateful to where, from where it came from instead of just plopping my Amex down and expecting you to go on your way. So I think we, we've come a long way, but we've also regressed in a way and, I, and I, I, we've got to work that out. I think one of the, you know, to kind of pivot toward, toward watches a little bit, one of the bits of, of Good Eats lore is, is that on each season of the show, you wore a different watch for True. the whole season. True. Including on one season, you wore a watch for about half a season that was broken, right? Yes. And the reason that I did that, one, being a watch fanatic, but also so that uh, at any moment, if I saw a show, on, I would be able to figure out what season it was. Okay. So I used it as a visual marker. Okay. Yeah. And so for Reloaded, I've watched a few episodes, and it seems like you're wearing a 5508. Is that? I'm so bad with reference numbers. You know, I, wrote, I write everything down. Hold on. Hold on. I, I've got this. I have this. I have all my reference numbers. Alton Brown carries reference numbers <laughs> in, in his pocket. I do. Hold on. Hold, okay. 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 So, <laughs> you know, it's like he if you're going to be a watch collector, upstairs. you have to be able to do reference numbers. And I ah, suck at it. Um, that is a 1953-6205 gilt. Okay. Okay. Gil Dial. It's my, it's my most expensive watch. Okay. And I only wear it when I'm making shows because I'm scared to wear it outside. <laughs> I mean, it's insured, but I'm like still yeah. terrified. So if there's of, an episode where you're grilling something outside, it'll, you'll take it off or something? No, I, I won't take it off during a show. I won't. Yeah. But I'm really careful, <laughs> like the watch. Uh, yeah, that was because it, it's from the, the first reference that actually said Submariner right. on the dial, so it's special. Um, and it's gorgeous. And, so yeah, that's the first time that I've worn a watch straight through one, one, one whole pass like that. Okay, and then for next season of Reloaded, what are you gonna be wearing? Have you decided yet? Because I'm gonna roll this guy um, outside later on after today, I'm gonna have his, uh, <laughs> his uh, Jeune uh, Cromanetto Blue, which is what okay. I'll wear next season. Great. So just wanted to go ahead and tell you. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Paul. In Georgia, where I live, they sell tasers like on the street, so. Um, <laughs> No, what you did Sorry. is you said I could, I could wear uh, your, your 1655 uh, up here, and I was like, dude, I've got one. I left it and brought the Timex instead, so. Yeah, um, so can you tell us why? You know, a lot of people I know, it's a Hodinkee gathering. Everybody wants to kind of, sh you know, flex and show 
they, they have a watch they want everybody to see them wearing. Sure. <laughs> and I asked you upstairs in the green room what watch you were wearing, and you're wearing a Timex. I'm wearing a for Timex. For very good reason. I am. I'm wearing a Timex Marlin uh, in the burgundy. Uh, face. My, my wife, Elizabeth, who's back there, hi, sweetheart, um, knows that I was like looking at the safe and I was telling you guys, trying to decide, what do I wear, you know, this paddock or this. And I was like, heck no, I'm going to Hodinkee, I'm going to rock a Timex. And the reason is that ultimately why I'm in a gathering like this and why I like hanging with you guys is all emotional. Mm -hmm. To me, watches are incredibly emotional things. And I remember learning how to tell time I wanted a watch so badly. I was, I've been in love with watches ever since I was really young, and my dad promised me that he would buy me a watch if I would learn how to tell time, but I had to pass a test. You know, I had to like, he had to time test me. And I remember, I mean, I wasn't, I was four, probably. Okay. And I, it's like my first, one of my first memories is taking this, this test. You know, as he was like, okay, say this two different ways. You know, is it 9.45 or 15 to 10, you know? And I remember taking the test, and I passed the test, and he gave me, like an early 60s Timex Marlin. And it was like, it was like I was being knighted. You know, the, this, the, this device was one step towards, I don't know, immortality. I mean, what is it? You know, it, for, for me, for he and I, it was, it was very much a bond of father and son, which I know a lot of guys have with the watches of their fathers, of the grandfathers, great father, grandfathers, um, you know, Need I say, Christopher Walken Rolex. We all know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> or perhaps not. Um, <laughs> but to me, it's, it's very emotional. So I wanted to wear a watch that had an emotional backstory. So, you know, you can, you can chase references and you can chase calibers and you can chase all these things. But in the end, why are you really doing it? And I think it's really great to have a touchstone of why? why. Why am I doing this? Why am I so obsessed with this little bunch of whirling gears and springs and balances and turbulence if you've got a lot of money? Um, why, are, why are we so fascinated by that? And I think that it's just, one, we're obsessed with the passage of time, as we should be, but then I, I think the other is, is strictly emotional, strictly limbic system stuff. Nice. And good night, oh, sorry, Tom. No, I was going to say, I think it's a good choice. I think it's a good-looking watch, too. But you guys did a fabulous write-up on these. Uh, yes, I think you did a wonderful story on, yeah, on this. Wrote that and one. one of the things I love about that is you guys are not snooty about this stuff <clears> because you understand that watch collecting it covers an entire wild range of things, you know? And how many of us actually had the Casio calculator watch? <laughs> Who still wears it? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, so I, so I think that um, that's one of the things that's so great about you guys is you don't turn your nose up at things like that because you know that there's this massive range of, of movements and massive range of makers and massive range of buyers. And, and I talk to new collectors all the time, as I, I know you guys mm -hmm. do, and I'm like, look, you can spend less than $1,000 on a watch that will stay in your collection forever. For sure you can. Absolutely you yeah. can. Um, and so it makes sense. So thank you for your write-up on the... No. On the Marlin. We, we do what we can. You do what you can. Um, you, you talk about the idea that these things are all about emotion, and I think that that's something we see in your, you know, your work in, in the food world as really? well, is this combination of you know, real deep human emotion on one hand, and then just total geekery on the other, right? You're, you're somebody who loves little technical things and kind of the, the science behind things. But also, it has to kind of matter on a human level. And how do you think about balancing those two things out? Because they can sometimes feel a Gosh, little bit you know, kind of at odds. It's really funny that you mention that. I, I tend to shy away. Uh, I'm emotionally shy. Um, I don't, I'm not a sentimental person. And I, I, so I, I think that I 
I flirt <laughs> right up against the edge of, of emotional, the stuff that connects us, or the stuff that connects us to family, the stuff, you know, you can't deal with food without dealing with emotion, because everybody has emotionally charged. Everybody in this room, I'm betting, has one childhood memory involving food that is very emotionally important to you. I'm gonna bet. I mean, can I show of hands? How many people can like life? So the majority of us, you know, it's, it's emotional stuff. And, and, but I think that if you get, if you dwell on that, it gets really maudlin, and I think it makes everybody a little bit comfortable. We, you know, it's, it's kind of like, there's a relative, but I don't want to look directly at that relative. I'm going to have that relative right over here. Um, and so I think that you balance that with, okay, what we're going to focus on are these uh, technical details in science, because that's clean, and that's easy, and that doesn't made me cry when I go to bed at night. Um, and, and so there's always just a balance, and that's storytelling. But all storytelling is about tensions and the balance of tensions. Mm -hmm. And you know, as you guys know, as you talk about what you do, storytelling has to play all those, all those different dimensions. So for me, it's just a balance. If you play all emotion, you, you lose people. Because you go emotional, a lot of people have bad emotions. I also have bad emotions about food. And I don't want to go that deep. So it's, it's, a, it's a, a, a little dance of details. It's a dance between um, humor, um, science, details, and emotion. Because, you know, the funny thing about food is, you know, we, we can't taste it through the television. We don't, we still don't have lickable screens. So it is still a second-hand <laughs> experience. Yet. Not yet. I hope, Coming. I hope you're working on that. Smell-o-vision will happen before taste-o-vision, I'll tell you that. Okay. Um, you heard it here first. No, it's totally true. It's totally true. Um, we've, it already exists. It's just nobody can figure out how to make money on it. Like YouTube. Um, Anyway, so to, to me, it's, it's all, of, it's, it's balance. And, and, and when you get it right and when you don't get it right, it's just all f feel. There's no equation, which you guys probably know. Yeah. It's like, why does somebody that doesn't have that much money run all over the planet saving all their pennies to pick up one specific reference of one specific watch because for some reason they've locked onto it? Is there a reason for that? Because it doesn't actually make sense. We should all just be wearing, you know, Apple watches here, right? And calling it a day, but we refuse to do it. And there's a reason that we refuse to do it. And so is your watch collecting also a kind of balancing act for you of this, of the emotional sure it and is. technical? Absolutely. I do not understand myself as a collector at all. I do not get it. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know why I make the decisions that I make. I will up and sell th three years, well, I got divorced back in 2013, 14, and I sold my entire collection. I don't know why, but I just did. It was kind of like I just dumped everything. And then I slowly started buying the pieces that mattered again. Um, and I think that if, if you're a collector, the interesting thing is to be introspective enough to, to try to understand why you're doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, what you're wearing, you know, which as we were talking about, it's kind of the, the, the perfect the perfect watch, you know, the Explorer 1 and 1016. Yeah. You know, why do, we, why do we chase it? Why do we want it so gosh darn bad? You know, I don't know why I, why I want what good. I want. It feels good. It's feels right. Good. Yeah. But in the end, don't we, we, men at least, you know, women are, do have a different because they can wear jewelry and they're defined right. by stones and they're defined by, you know, diamonds and things. We don't have that. And so we want to have these things that identify us to ourselves. I'm this guy. Yep. I'm yeah. a 1016. Mm -hmm. You know, and we do it with cars, too. For sure. I'm a 1983 Porsche SC Targa, 911. That's me. Um, hell yeah. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> my wife fights me for it every day. I, tell her, I bought her a fabulous race car Mercedes just so she'd stay out on my Porsche. Now you know, sweetheart. Um, <laughs> but we do them because we want to identify and see, we want our reflection, yeah. right? We want to see ourselves. Absolutely. This is how I'm going to identify. This is how I'm going to identify. Some guys do it with tailoring. Some guys do it with watches. I don't know about you guys. I, what's the first thing you look at when you meet a man? I guess probably a watch, yeah. 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 I'd probably first, be bad at my job thing. if I didn't. First thing. And how many of you immediately, it's okay to say it, if it's quartz, do you downgrade them? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And it's that not is a good, horrible, it's, you shouldn't applaud that. Don't applaud no, that. That is a horrible yeah. prejudice. Yeah. But the truth is, the, the first thing I look at is a watch. And if they pass the, wa if they pass the watch, where do you look next? Uh, shoes. Yeah, I guess shoes. shoes. Yeah. yeah. Shoes. We look at shoes. You know why? Because they speak of caring for things. I'm wearing a 10-year-old pair of Doc Martin Chelsea boots that have never been polished, so I suck. You guys look awesome. Um, I mean, the fact that they're 10 years old, I think, is telling. You look, you look at things that are lasting that people tend to hold on to. You know, it's funny. Well, the thing about watches and shoes and, to some <clears throat> degree, clothing and certainly leather goods, I want to see the wear of time. Mm -hmm. And I don't know when that became important to me. Yeah. I think maybe it always was. I mean, I'm 56 years old, so I certainly have the wear of time on me. But um, when I look at, you know, one of my fascinations with the 1016 reference is, is, is finding tropical dials and finding these yeah. faded, you know, Rolex dials fade in a way that cannot be replicated. Nobody's been able to figure out how to do that. Yeah. And I understand that there's now a company in Japan that's doing nothing but creating patinaed faces for old Seiko dive watches. And I'm like, good for you, but you're never going to pull that off really. Um, so this, uh, this question of authenticity arises because only through time passage and where does authenticity become an option? Mm -hmm. yeah. Whether it's a great piece of leather, a suit that was made properly 20 years ago, or an automobile that is worn in perfectly right. I'm also a pilot, so I see it in airplanes. People are like, you, you'll fly an airplane from the 60s? I'm like, hell yes, I'll fly an airplane from the 60s, because they've proven themselves. They have these great airframes. So I think maybe in the end, all of it, is a search for authenticity, yeah. a representation of ourselves, a reflection of ourselves and the things that are around us. And now a message from this week's sponsor. Hi, everybody. I'm Hodinkee Editor-in-Chief Jack Forster. In 1972, self-winding chronographs represented the very latest and cutting-edge innovation in watchmaking. Tag Heuer's remarkable Caliber 11 was one of the very first of the new breed, and in 1972, this revolutionary engine found its way into one of the most instantly recognizable Heuer chronographs of all time. This was the famous reference 1163, whose signature red-accented dial and hands have been brought into the present in the latest version of the Heuer Octavia. The new Octavia updates the timeless appeal of the 1163 with Tag Heuer's own in-house, self-winding, column-wheel-controlled Caliber 02. It's not just a piece of history anymore. The new version is being offered by Tag Heuer right now, and if you order early, you'll get a copy of the book Inside Track by the first American ever to win the Formula One Drivers' Championship, Phil Hill himself. To find out more, you can visit tagheuer.com. And now, back to the show. You talked about this a little bit in your Talking Watches episode, but you're somebody who likes a really well-beat-up watch. I beat them up, I wear the crap out of things, um, and I don't mind scratches. I don't ever buff things out. Um, every scratch, every piece of wear is, a, is, a, is either a memory or a little mark in time that I'm gonna have. Yeah, I, I think the, the only scratch you really, that bothers me anyway is the first one. And then it's like, okay, yeah. then, now you own it, and after that, let, let, let what will happen happen. The first scratch is rough. That is, a, that is the, the most rough, <laughs> the roughest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
But you know, the first scratch is the first evidence, physical and visual evidence of it being yours. Exactly. We live That's lives, yeah. you know, and we, um, we, we use things, and things that are well-made, you know, it's funny, in our culture, anything of real quality should be used, you know? I, I remember having somebody say, oh my God, you're wearing a Burberry trench coat to ride a motorcycle. I'm like, it was invented for trench warfare in World War I. I think this will be okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or, or you know, I, I have this, this, this old uh, Louis Vuitton duffel bag and I drag it on the ground through the airport. I'm like, you know why? Because they can take it and it's not gonna fall apart and it'll look awesome. So I, I think that fine things should be used. Well used. And so since your episode of Talking Watches, have you found any new watches? And not, not modern watches, but anything new to your collection that I you're have. just obsessed with? My, you know, as I don't understand my collection, and I don't understand why I obsess over the things I obsess over. Um, because I'm a pilot, I've obsessed over GMTs almost to the point of madness. Um, and I, I suddenly got off on this subset of, I'm only going to fixate on GMTs that are Tiffany cosigns. I don't know why, I, it just happened. Um, so uh, Tiffany I, signed GMT is a cool thing. It's you know, there's an no awesome thing. thing, it's an awesome thing. So, you know, I've, I've added uh, uh, GMTs all the way back to 1958. Uh, I've become obsessed with the replacement bezels and Bakelite and the colors that they take on. Um, my wife is a, is a designer. Hi, Elizabeth, you all right back there? Um, re, um, designs restaurants and, and uh, furniture, and we talk constantly about patina and how things wear. Mm -hmm. um, and so, like, the Bakelite bezels on, on GMTs, I'm kind of fixated on and, and, and judging those finishes. So, um, since I was with you guys, I put on a, a few more GMTs. Um, I sold a couple of paddocks. I picked up, oh, you know, I was, I was telling you guys, I have to look up the reference again. Was it 13, 1357? Uh, that I'm, I've gone crazy for the paddock, sorry, 3579. The paddock 3579, if anybody has one here in the house, it's from the 70s, I'll buy it. <laughs> I don't care if it's running, I don't care if it's not running. Uh, I, have the, I have the silver face, I need the blue face. It is a very simple watch. It makes the Calatrava look like a Breitling, all right? So <laughs> it's like nothing at all on the face. It almost doesn't have any hands. So uh, I'm, I'm really, really into those watches from the 70s. And, and Paddock, I'm sure, would shrink at having even made it because it looks a little trendy. It does not 70s. look like a Paddock. It doesn't look like a Paddock, does it? Well, I don't even know what it looks like. I mean, it's... It's kind of a Tonneau 70s... Yeah, I guess anybody almost could, like a C-shaped well, case, kind of. Kind of. Yeah. For people listening yeah. after yeah. after not live here, uh, we'll link it up in the show notes. So we'll have, we'll have an image of that. Oh my god, I just drove the price of this watch up. Shit. What are <laughs> Yeah. So you should go. It's crap. I hate that watch. You should go buy them before this runs. Yeah. <laughs> buy them before this runs. Everybody make a run. But for on some these reason, uh, it's, it's it's funny. I, I bought one of these watches. Um, I, um, Elizabeth and I got married in September, and if September is like, I have to wear the perfect watch to get married, and I need a, I need another watch to represent this new phase of my life, and I found this paddock uh, from the 70s that was so unique and I bought it and I wore it to get married and, and I found myself, you know, you, you ever had a watch that you, know, you just can't stop looking at it? Oh my you gosh, you totally. look at it, you yeah. know. I had a friend that actually wrecked a car looking at his watch. Um, <laughs> we do not endorse that, by the way. No, we're not, yeah. not suggesting that. Not lawyers will really love but it if I say we do not I, endorse The more that. I've gazed at this watch, the more I've kind of fixated I've become on it. And I don't know why. I don't need to explain why to myself. It's just, that's gonna be my reference for a while. That's what I'm gonna chase. And is there another watch that is like 
further down the line, something that's your, your grail of a thing that you... you yeah, his Jern Chronometra Blue. <laughs> yeah. Um, to me, I'm really sorry. So, so you know, I, I collected diving watches for a long time because, I mean, I'm a diver, but I grew up on a steady diet of, of Jacques Cousteau. Mm. And so any watch that I saw, anyone wear on the Calypso was, was game. And, and I wanted those watches. And as a diver, I wanted those watches. Um, and that turned into a fascination um, with, like, 25,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And... And, and Jeans look like that to me. They're, they're, they're very of that period, very machine age. Um, and, and I love those designs. I think it's the most beautiful watches being made right now, frankly. Amazing. Yeah. Well, we're going to open it up to questions from the audience in Goody. just a minute. Uh, while we get some mics set up around the room, um, if you just raise your hand, somebody will come to you with a microphone. But I have a question I want to ask that's sort of a non sequitur at this point. But, okay. Uh, it's a good eats question. Ask away. You I'm are, familiar. You are famous as a, as a gear nut for disliking things that only do one job. Correct. What do you think are the most useful and the most useless things that somebody can have in their kitchen? Well, first I want to say unitaskers versus multitaskers. Um, I waged a war on unitaskers, but then I relented a little because I realized that perhaps that was only my lack of imagination with that particular tool. Okay. Because other people have come and said, well, I use this for this. And I'm like, oh, yeah, all right, I was wrong. Um, I don't like tools that only do one job. But I have found that if people use their imaginations, actually tools do all kinds of jobs. It just depends on, on the mind. You know, for me, I am constantly um, surprised by how often I reach for a panini press. Okay. Totally. I have never made a panini <laughs> in a panini press. I will do that between two hot cast iron pans, but I will do a lot of other things in a panini press. I make the best uh, Cornish hens in the world in a panini press. I cook things in there all the time, um, but I don't. Def you, do, you spatchcock it and put it in a panini. You press? said spatchcock. I did say spatchcock. <laughs> yeah. I told you. I watched the show. <laughs> Yes, I spatchcock it and, and throw it in there, and then I put a bunch of weights on it and squeeze the ever-living crap out of it. But I cook all kinds of things in there. So I, I think that any, any, tool, any tool that puts your imagination into play and you start thinking, ah, I could use this to do this, is a good thing. It could be a steamer basket. It could be, it could be any, anything, any, any tool that you can buy. So... What's a, what's a unitasker, really? I think a unitasker is defined by the person. If you buy a tool that only does one thing, you better be using it all the frickin' time. It's like, because somebody's like, okay, I bought a, a robotic, and this actually exists, a robotic donut fryer. Oh, wow. Now, that doesn't do a whole lot of things, but it does one thing really well. And, and I knew per, a person in uh, Seattle who had bought this old vintage, they used to set them up in storefronts, and it was a thing that would take the dough and it would squirt it, and it would actually, it was like an assembly line robot for donuts. Yep. It was like, it's a unitasker, so I'm going to have to get rid of it. And I said, ah, 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 ah. let's cook some calamari in that bad boy. Oh. And then we made, we made robotic donut line uh, calamari. We had to throw out the oil because it tasted kind of greasy. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but the point is, is that you know, in the end, the best thing that kitchen tools can do for us is to get us to play. You know, the kitchen's a laboratory and a playroom at the same time. So the things that are in it are toys, aren't they? Mm -hmm. yeah. right? So we're making food, but we're also expanding our minds. We're expanding our imagination. So whatever you can pull off, do it. Great. Not a great answer to your question. That's a fantastic answer. Um, let's see. Who would like to start with questions? The passing of the microphone. Hey, so you... Uh 
you mentioned fish sauce as something that was practically unheard of, at least in this part of the world, 20 years ago and is now everywhere. What and I should say, for white people. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, right. So unheard of. Yeah, exactly. White people were like, so, what's this stuff? This smells like ass. <laughs> so what do you think the next ingredient is that maybe billions of people are eating, but we aren't uh, right now and maybe will be... Uh, popular in 20 years? Just the sort of question you expected to get. <laughs> You're not talking about like a trend, like what's going to be hot next, like we're all going to be eating... Something, they, that, I would say that it will be in the realm of fermentation, and it will be something like fermented yak butter out of Nepal. Americans, white people, <laughs> are just really getting our, our feet wet when it comes to the, the flavors of fermentation. And the thing about fermentation is that it's so smart because it creates amazing flavors and it's a great way of making food last. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's face it, there aren't that many like Midwestern Americans that had, had kimchi 10 years ago. Um, and that's a shame because the stuff's freaking awesome. So I, I think it'll definitely be more more fermentation, and we're, we're seeing leaps and bounds made in, in that. Um, and, uh, certainly in Scandinavia, there's a whole lot going on with with fermentation um, in Asia, certainly. So I, I think it'll probably be funkier flavors that we're going to accept, um, and, and things like fermented butter and uh, butter tea and things like that will will be there. You know, we're getting better. We finally accept bitterness. Really, you know, we will eat our radicchio. We drink our coffee black and strong. So Americans weren't into bitter even 10 years ago. So I think now that we, we, we've gotten ourselves around bitter, we're drinking Amaro. How many people drink, drink Amaro here? How many people are, oh my God, come on guys, Amaro, really? Jägermeister, come on, how many? Yeah, okay, that's what I thought. <laughs> um, you know, we're, we're, we're into more complex flavors and I think that now, we're gonna, now that we've gotten used to complexity and bitterness, we're gonna get funky. Great. Uh, we have somebody up front right here. Yes, ma'am. Does your view of uh, unipurpose and multipurpose things extend to the knife collection? Knives, knives uh, get a free, uh, free pass simply because I'm obsessed with them. Um, <laughs> however, um, the problem with knives is that uh, folks, at least in the United States, I think, want to have 20 crappy ones instead of two good ones. And, and I think that it's kind of like a watch collection in a way. You have to start identifying what real quality is and understanding its effect on how your cooking is gonna go. The truth is, there are very few things more useful in a kitchen than a high quality um, knife with, with good steel that has been ground correctly. And it, it will change your world uh, very much. So that's a case where I think that uh, fewer pieces of high quality greatly exceed a bunch of knives. You don't need three boning knives, you know. You need a paring knife, you need a serrated knife, a chef's knife, and a boning knife. You need four knives, that's all. And if you really like oysters, get an oyster knife, or a screwdriver. <laughs> uh, because a good craftsman uh, uh, flathead screwdriver is better than an oyster knife. Um, but, but make them high quality. You know, people will be like, I'm not gonna spend $350 on a knife. I'm like, yeah, if you've got it, you really ought to think about that. And by the way, my favorite knife maker in the world is uh, Cut Brooklyn in Brooklyn, New York. They're making the best knives on the planet here in New York. So Amazing. congratulations. Cool. Uh, we have a question right up here. Hi. 
So you mentioned watches having significant emotional impact with you. Yes. Do you remember the watch you picked out to wear the first time you went on a date or met your wife? Uh, what was she wearing? She wasn't. And it distressed me. <laughs> My wife was not wearing a watch uh, on our, our first date. She is now, though. Uh, she's, she's definitely, I do. I, and I, 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 I remember what I was wearing and, and, and why I picked it. Yeah, and it's the watch she's wearing now. What's that, honey? Well, you, yeah, you're, you're a big Omega fan, but we've got to get that thing fixed, honey. That, that movement's a little scrappy right now, <laughs> which might explain why you were 45 minutes late. Uh, I don't know. If <laughs> I'm kidding. She wasn't late. She was completely on time. But, you know, it's funny. You know, I think guys... We always wonder, is, is, a, is a woman going to notice? Because it shows such a huge part of our personality and things that we don't even know how to talk about. You know, a guy is like, okay, am I going to wear an IWC Portuguese or am I going to wear an Omega 300 Seamaster? What am I going to wear on the first date? You know, what am I saying about myself? And, and people that can read that, you know, and there's nothing more wonderful than having a woman notice your watch. You're like, yeah. <laughs> And I don't need a 44 millimeter case, by the way. Um, so, <laughs> I'm sorry, but Breitling is compensating for something. Because uh, <laughs> nobody's used a Navitimer in the last 20 years. It's just, you know, pilots don't do that. Uh, but that's a great question. When, do you, as, as a member of the lady class, uh, how much attention have you put into the watches that you've worn on dates? That was a Houdinki strap. That cami strap, it's awesome. And that cami strap is awesome. Like, wow, you pulled that out on date one? <laughs> 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 this, by the way, is Ryan, one of our engineers, a, a extremely valuable member of the Hodinki team who not enough people get to meet. So let's get a round of applause for Ryan. Yeah. Met these guys last night. You sh still should have bought her the Cartier, but we'll talk about this later. Um, <laughs> anybody else? Yeah. This guy's had his hand yeah. up for quite a while. Hey, I'm a huge fan. Thank I was you. just wondering, uh, what's one food or beverage or maybe just cooking process that you think of time as being the magic ingredient? Time is the magic ingredient for barbecue. Um, southern, southern barbecue is defined not by smoke but by time. Um, and there's no way around it. There's no way to cheat it. There's no way to replace it. There's no way to circumvent it. Time is, is absolutely true. And, and in a lot of meat cookery, time, it's funny, we, and even I, have perpetuated this uh, kind of myth that temperature is the most important factor when actually time is more important. And it's the one thing that Americans don't want to give their food, time. So no pressure cookers? No, I love pressure cookers. I love them. They are the TARDIS of the food world. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely the TARDIS, except it's not bigger on the inside. 
if I had a pressure cooker that was bigger than this, that'd be awesome. Um, I love pressure cookers and uh, work with them often uh, to, to fold space and time. Yeah. But that's not something that can be done with barbecue because the other factor within barbecue is evaporation. Mm -hmm and the, the loss of, of moisture during that, which you're not gonna get in a pressure sure. cooker. So, but that's, that's the one thing. Great. Uh, oh, perfect, thank you. Hi. Hey. So, uh, when I was growing up, we grew up eating a lot of like box cake for birthdays. And then when we started making stuff from scratch, I noticed everyone was much more amazed eating the frosting, it's so much better than the stuff you can buy in a can, but less so on the cake. So let me ask you, what is a food that you think making from scratch is way better than the store-bought version? And what's something you think isn't much better when you make it at home? This is a fantastic question. Now I'm gonna explain why this is the truth. Frosting, okay, did everybody hear what he said? Okay, box cake, nobody can make a scratch cake as good as box cake, but frosting you can. And you know what, you just kind of encapsulated the, the entire mystery there, which is that frosting is something that has very few ingredients. I mean, it's really the essence of candy making, which is the control of sugar and the crystallization of sugar and the flavoring of that. Cake is completely different because box cake manufacturers have, have access to modified starches and industrial products that we can't get off the shelf. And even if we could, we wouldn't really know what to do with them, which is why I cannot make a better chocolate cake than Duncan Hines. I have tried, I can't. I can add cognac, <laughs> okay, and, and, and you know what, very often it's like you, you buy like a, a Betty Crocker cake and it says to put in a third of a cup of oil, get the white cake and use olive oil instead. You're a freaking genius. But the truth is, is when it comes to almost anything that includes starch, the mixes will beat us every time because those starches, those actual products have been manufactured to make that cake successful. And it's incredibly difficult to do from scratch. The things that, that people don't realize that they can do that, that are always better, and I fall back on this, marshmallows. Oh my God, homemade marshmallows are like the best thing ever. And when you make homemade s'mores with your own marshmallows and you put a little bit of blue cheese or gorgonzola in the s'more and then serve it with a cold muscat. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, can I make butter better than Kerrygold or, or, or Vermont uh, Cheese and Butter Company, which has a fermented butter? I can't, I can make butter but it's not gonna be better. And I can make cake, but I will never make a devil's food cake as good as Duncan Hines. It's just not possible, because I don't have access to the materials. But I can beat their frosting hands down. Good question. Thank you. Yeah, very good question. Well done. Uh, who else? So, we've got one in the back. Hey, uh, so um, I think a lot of us just in our childhood have a certain dish that we just always retract back to no matter how extensive our palate gets over the years. What's something from your childhood that you will always love that other people might not? Gainsburger's dog food. <laughs> how many people were alive in the 60s? Okay, so <laughs> you and me, camera guy. Um, so in the, in the 60s, there was this dog food company called Gainsburgers, and they made this dog food that looked like a raw hamburger patty, 
okay? It was like this shredded meat product, and they wrapped it in cellophane, and you're supposed to, like, you, you kind of uncrumble it, you crumble it in your dog's bowl. I become obsessed with this stuff as a child, and, and would often trade my food um, to the dog to get the Gaines burgers. <laughs> uh, and even, I remember one night, uh, I, I announced to my parents that I was going to make dinner. And I'm like, five. I'm like, five. I'm like, I'm going to make dinner. And my parents are like, yeah, that's great. Okay, fine. Go do that. You know, and I go, fine, I will. God damn it. You know, and I, <laughs> I was Stewie Griffin even then. You know, and I was like, <laughs> I chose it. Come on, Brian. And we <laughs> trundled off to the kitchen. And, and I, I, made, I, I got out these hamburger buns. And I got out pickles and ketchup and mustard and lettuce and Gainsburger's dog dog food in the, in the, in the, uh, the, the patty. And, and, I, and I built these hamburgers, right? And I go out and I like serve my mom and my dad and they're like, our child is Mozart. Oh my God, this is amazing. And we're sitting and, we, and I get him to eat and we're sitting and we're eating and my dad's eating. You know, I'm, I'm eating and my mom's not eating. And my dad looks over my mom and says, her name was Phyllis, so he called her Phil. He's like, what's wrong, Phil? And she said, I didn't buy any ground beef. <laughs> and my dad's chewing. And he looks down, and the dog is sitting right there, looking up at him. And he looks at the dog, and he looks at it, and he looks at me. And in the only testament of love I remember from the man, he went right on chewing, <laughs> swallowed, excused himself, took his scotch, and went and watched TV. James <laughs> so, Burger's dog food. Uh. We should have time for one or two more. Uh, any more hands? Up, oh, right there. Uh, just going back to uh, single-task machinery versus multi-purpose machines, and, and how that extends to watches. Uh, you know, you mentioned your interest in a in a very simple time-only uh, watch earlier. Uh, how does that extend to, to your watch collecting and, and what, if any, complications do you find most useful, not only in, in the kitchen, but in your, your daily life? Good question. Um, I have always had a propensity, although I talk about simplicity a lot in watches. If you were to look at my collection, you would see a lot of professional tool watches. Um, as a, uh, a pilot, I used to be obsessed with, with flying watches, with pilot watches, and, and only to find that, you know, after a while, you know, E6B calculators like we have on the Navitimer or the Breitling series, we don't use them anymore, but we do use stopwatches. And um, when you're in a holding pattern, everything is determined by one-minute legs, and the easiest thing to hit is, is a stopwatch. So I will very often, when I fly, wear a uh, flyback. Uh, chrono, because I want it to pop back and reset every minute. Um, so I wear those a great deal. Oddly enough, in a kitchen, and I've talked about this, chefs typically are very often are watch fanatics, and they'll wear something that has some form of elapsed time ring, because what we want is something to get really wet, really beat up, but that we can time with. And using a, a bezel-based timer, like on a Submariner, whether it's counting down or counting up, as you know some watches do, are, are, are very, very um, useful. Because I have hosted a lot of television shows that are, have been competitions with timed rounds, I have always used that as an excuse to write off watch purchases. <laughs> and I find in that case, watches devised for the racing world are very, very useful. So 
bring on the Monacos because, and the Carreras and the other hearers because they are, um, are really great for that and very readable for, for timing uh, 30 to 60 minute increments. Um, and then of course there will always be the Speedmaster, um, we were talking about those earlier, pre-pro uh, moon watches, which are also incredibly readable and easy. As I get older, I've got to be able to read those little bitty click, 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 uh, which is why I also still use a, an IWC uh, Portuguese quite a bit when timing shows, because it's crap for timing long periods, but great for short periods. So, great. Excellent question. Do we have one more? Anybody? Going up, right up here. Um, Elton, you're a guy with, uh, with very strong opinions, and I love that. So what is um, your one favorite thing in the watch industry or the one you know, least favorite thing in the watch industry you can share? Um, my most favorite thing in the watch industry and my least favorite? Oh, okay. Um, I uh, don't understand, uh, didn't understand the trend that we got into in the 2000s towards watches the size of Frisbees. I don't have a wrist that can support that. To this day, I will try on a Panerai, and it's like, hey, Sonny, where'd you get your dad's watch? Um, um, I also like it when watch companies find a way to progress and evolve while maintaining faithfulness to their DNA. When a watch stops looking like a company, I have a problem with it. And, and I, I think that in engineering and design, the real great thing about watches is when they, you look at a line and you see a clear transition and a clear loyalty to their, to their DNA. And, and I, I really respect that because I think that's harder to do than, than a lot of things. Uh, you guys probably have opinions on that as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I agree. I think there's a, a tendency to want to push things and always do that next, that next thing. And I think having some restraint there is, is a valuable thing. You got to know who you are, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think if, in the case, we mentioned Panerai. In the case of a brand like Panerai, I think having that larger case is, is who they are. Yeah. That is, it's always who yeah. they are. I mean, you put on it's one true. of the original Panerais, and it still looks like my dad's watch. Yeah. So they, they've always stayed true to that. Um, but, but other companies, I mean, Breitling's, I think, a really great example of somebody who just went pimp. <laughs> I can't wear a pimp watch. <laughs> Guy Fieri can wear pimp watches. <laughs> you know, Breitling is the official timepiece of Flavortown. I... <laughs> I'm gonna shut up now, thanks guys. <laughs> so we're, we're gonna close the same way we close every episode of Hodinkee Radio, which is with a cultural recommendation. Sweet. So I think considering you are and kind of where we are and the fact that we have lots of people here from out of town. Um, let's keep it to restaurants. So what is a New York City restaurant that you think everybody should go try? Barbudo. Okay. I think of Barbudo as the quintessential, right now at least, you know, West Village <clears throat> Italian restaurant and, and one that I find myself recommending over and over again. Is there anything there you think everybody should try? Chocolate frickin' pudding. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Never had the chocolate pudding there. Then you're just wrong. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> My wife is also in the audience. We're going to Barbuda. Chocolate pudding. Yeah. Um, all right, perfect. John? Uh, if you like Japanese food, I'll recommend uh, in Chelsea, Naoki, which they have a very good kaiseki, and I think it's, for what it is, very reasonably priced. Um, and you probably could get in tonight if you wanted to. If all you, right. Yeah. Um, and if you want, if you're here tomorrow and you're interested in lunch nearby, um, just go across the street to Otto. They have very good pizza. You can get pasta, be in and out very quickly. The pizzas are fantastic. Yes. Yeah. Great. 
And uh, I'm going to go a little bit different, uh, and I'm going to say there's a place, Taqueria St. Mark's, uh, over in St. Mark's Place. Uh, I grew up in Austin, Texas. I grew up eating Mexican and Tex-Mex food multiple times a week, and when I moved to, I went to school, to college in the Midwest, uh, and then moved here, and not having good tacos was, was painful to me emotionally. We talk about, you know, food that carries great emotion. Um, I finally found, like, a great neighborhood cheap taco place. Uh, the bartender's a big Hodinkee fan, which helps. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's just a great neighborhood taco spot. So if you want some tacos, it's like a 10, 15-minute walk away. What's it called again? Taqueria St. Mark's. Taqueria St. Mark's, everybody. And they actually have a place up in Gramercy now, too, that they just opened. I haven't been really? to Really? Nice. But, yeah. Mine fantastic. It's L.A.-style, uh, like, you know, street cart tacos. It's fantastic. Sold. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you guys both for being here. Thank you, Alton. It's, it's amazing. Like, thank you. Thank like you I so said, much. you've been... An, a long-time member of the family, so it's great to have you Proud here. Proud to be here. What a great event. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you again to Alton and John for joining us. This episode was produced and edited by Grayson Corhonan and was recorded live at Hodinkee 10. We'd also like to thank everyone in the audience who came out to show their support and ask questions. Please remember to subscribe and rate the show. It really does help. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.